from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Van Lindbergh, a technology attorney for Dykema Cox Smith here in San Antonio. He's also a software developer and a member of the uh, Python Software Foundation on the board there, right, Van? That's correct. Yeah. Are, are you still chairing the board? Are you a member at this point? I'm just a member of the board and the general counsel. Okay. And then uh, you, you've also been involved in some other uh, individual open source projects over time. Uh, anything there you're passionate you want to plug or anywhere you'd like to hear um, any of the software developers we have listening to the program to, for them to get involved? I'm a big fan of almost anything Python. Okay. So Django, Django's one of my favorites. I've done a lot with that. And then I'm doing a lot with TensorFlow right now, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. What about uh, uh, the, the scientific computing Python stuff? Uh, that 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 especially the the anaconda distribution is is really nice uh, been playing with scikit learn yeah and so all all of this talking python and software programming and uh, a big data and this tensorflow and these things leads us into our, our topic for this week um, and if you're listening to CyberTalk Radio for the first time, we talk cybersecurity here uh, all the way from workforce development and education through to um, what are some of the implications as uh, software gets used out there in the real world. And this week we're going to dive into um, the ethics behind uh, a lot of this technology, whether it's uh, autonomous cars or do you pay a ransom to a, a hacker um, in a ransomware case or um, how do you, you think about uh, artificial intelligence and should we limit what the AI is going to be capable of doing? What are the governors and controls uh, that should be put in place there? We're going to go ahead and uh, open up about jumping uh, right into uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, many of you are probably listening to this while you're driving your own car right now. Uh, and we're headed into this world of uh, self-driving cars. There's already a little bit of uh, self-driving assistance things going on out there. Some of your cars may be able to park themselves. Some of them may be able to autopilot down a freeway. Uh, but what we're really going to talk about are these uh, vehicles that uh, Google's been prototyping or some of the other firms out there have been prototyping over the years that um, are fully functioning self-driving cars. So you, you don't have to, to do anything for it. You just tell it where you want to go and it, it drives itself there. Now, one of the interesting things about these is that it really is wide open. No one really understands what all the implications of these vehicles are going to be. We can only see some of the problems, but we can full, but we fully expect that there are going to be not only a lot of new businesses, but a lot of new problems that we never even contemplated yeah. ahead of time. Yeah, and and uh, I mean it's it's interesting. I think is you you look at um, your nav on your phone or your nav in your car if you have the the traffic feed, and in and around the the San Antonio area where we're broadcasting this from, uh, you'll see automobile accidents all over the roads every morning and every evening. So um, at a macro level, the self-driving cars in theory will make less mistakes than people because they're not going to get distracted. Um, they're not going to be enthralled with uh, listening to us and not look at the road. Uh, but there's still uh, going to be things that you can't think of ahead of time in the software or um, as we dive into some of the ethics here, maybe you you leave it to where the software doesn't really dive in to make a specific decision about certain things. 
So, yeah, the, according to the latest statistics, there are about 35,000 traffic accidents resulting in fatalities in the United States each year. Yeah, I mean, that's more deaths from cars than you have from guns. And if you think about it, reducing that, even, even if the self-driving cars aren't perfect, if they were to reduce that by half, that would be a huge benefit for society as a whole. Yeah. At the same time, you have a lot of companies that, and frankly, a lot of lawyers who are looking at these self-driving cars and saying, there's going to be a large pot of money at the end of every single one of these accidents. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one in the shift. And, and Warren Buffett brought up some of the stuff about Geico and their auto insurance business at the uh, last annual meeting they just had here where he thinks it may be 10 or 20 years, but definitely you're going to see a change in the auto insurance landscape because now if you, you get an auto accident, that attorney's looking at an individual and their insurance policy, whereas if it's a flaw in the software in the car, now you're potentially looking at a product defect lawsuit, which is a whole different category and a much sort of bigger pot of money to go after, and that's what those uh, uh, plaintiff attorneys like. You, they like being able to organize a class of... Uh, plaintiffs and go after a manufacturer on a on a wide scale defect. Well, it's not just on some sort of defect, but a lot of times they're worried about was there appropriate disclosure of the different ways in which things could act. And when we look at this idea of the ways in which things could act, you have really sort of two different two different solutions that could come into that. One is are we going to have the government step in and say, you must make certain types of decisions at a certain time, in which case there would be the failure to do that would arguably be a bug? Or are you going to have situations in which different companies make reasoned but different decisions, and so they may not all act identically, in which case it may be working as designed? Yeah. And then you, you have the whole cyber criminal aspect of this because all of these uh, autonomous vehicles are, um, it looks like, are all going to be plugged into the Internet under some manner. Uh, and we've, we've seen already exploits against certain manufacturers where people can uh, turn the car off remotely so you could have your car shut off in the middle of, of driving along uh, by a cyber attack. And how, how do you contemplate that? How does that get handled? How do you buy insurance for, for uh, a cyber attack on your automobile? Well, autonomous cars are really within the broader scope of what is generally being referred to as the Internet of Things. And the security for the Internet of Things is charitably described right now as not good. And so, and that includes a lot of these different systems that are within cars. And so, as you mentioned, there have been able, there have been some people that have been able to take control and turn the car off, engage the brake. Uh, in some cases, engage the, the steering or do various things because different systems that you would not have expected to have been connected, such as the entertainment system, have been connected through the computer to the brakes, yeah. which doesn't necessarily strike me as a great idea. Yeah, yeah. If you were a, the, in the the plaintiff attorney side of the world, that might be what you would consider a, a design flaw that uh, could be. Uh, one where arguing in front of a jury, there's no reason the Bluetooth radio should be connected to the brakes on the car so that if somebody hacks my cell phone and I hook it up to Bluetooth, they can now hit the brake pedal on my car. Yes. That said, in contrast to the Internet, which was built upon this idea of scientists exchanging information and 
everyone knew each other, everyone was trusting. People are recognizing that attacks are a very real thing and part of the modern world. And there is a lot more effort to build insecurity into cars in particular from the ground up. And so while you will never be able to eliminate certain classes of threats, I'm confident that as this technology evolves, at least in cars, you're going to have a circumstance where you're, it's going to be hard enough to make certain types of attacks that it will reduce to a baseline level that is ends up being acceptable. Yeah, so you're saying that the, the odds of a worm-style outbreak uh, uh, like this WannaCry, WannaCrypt, it's probably not going to pop up in my car saying that my car is being held for ransom by attackers and until I pay them in Bitcoin, I can't drive my car again. I didn't say that that won't happen. I'm sure that there will be some sort of major incident or two or three or five. Yeah. But even with that, probably these things are going to be, the cars are going to end up being much more secured simply because of the larger opportunity for damage that they represent. When you talk to these car manufacturers, they are very, very concerned about safety, and that extends down to the software. What happens is they sometimes make design decisions that are, are based upon this idea that, all right, we have, de- we have control over what's going on, and they don't always fully contemplate the ways in which an attacker might be able to misuse or change the use of different functions that they put in for a perfectly legitimate reason. Yeah. And this um, attacks against the autonomous vehicles could come via software, but also as uh, we were uh, talking before we we went on air here a little bit, maybe we can dive into this now. So uh, in order to be an autonomous vehicle, you have to have um, sensors on the car that can recognize objects around the car. Uh, so if, and, uh, Van, well, this is one where I'll let you, you dig in and explain this stuff a little bit, but, um, as you're writing the software for the car, do you try to differentiate between a child and a stroller, between a, an elderly woman, between a tree and a dog and a lamppost? Do you, you try to differentiate in these things? And, and if so, how are you, you gonna do that and think about it? Well, Probably the most commonly used and the the co- most commonly used technology for these self-driving cars is called LIDAR for light detection and ranging. Think radar, but done with light. Uh, the nice thing about LIDAR is that it creates a very, very high resolution map where it shows you all the different obstacles around you. And it does it fast enough that it, it needs to watch over time to see if things are moving or not. But from a LiDAR perspective, you just see some, whether something is in your way or not. It looks like an obstacle or it looks like a clear path. And you need to get beyond that in order to start making differences. For example, you have a tree you have a, and you have a pedestrian that's standing over on the, on the side of the road, maybe a little bit into the road. From a certain sensor perspective, those just both look like things that you shouldn't hit. And one way to look at this is to think, should we really be evaluating whether it is better to hit a human or a tree or, or try and make those sorts of judgments or just say, we should try our best not to hit anything. Especially because anytime you get into some sort of accident, you are not only endangering 
whatever you hit. You're also endangering the people in the car. Yeah. So is there some sort of implicit weighing that goes on between the passengers in the car and a pedestrian? We know that currently in traffic laws and the way things are set up, the people in the car are presumed to be to have more protection, to be more in control. They're going faster. And so there is heightened protection for pedestrians. But if you were to try and implement that sort of thing in software, you would actually need to get a second sort of sensor, something which could detect types of shapes, or maybe it would be a camera, a, a, a visual camera, like that would look at these all, all the things around and say, this thing looks like a human. That thing looks like a human. In which case, you have a second process that's always going along, along trying to evaluate what all these different shapes are around it. If you do that, the way that you would program this into the computer is to say, is you have a cost function associated with hit, hitting different things. So if you identify the first item as a tree, and you say that costs a thousand, some something really bad to hit. Yeah. Well, then maybe, maybe a human would be five thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand, something significantly higher, so that the car would in, implicitly make the decision. Well, it's going to cost me less if I have if I can't steer straight or steer around everything. I'm going to hit the tree because that costs me less. Yeah, it's a, an interesting one there because they, you you open yourself up to these kind of physical hacking of software. Now, if I'm a, a mischievous teenager, let's say I can jump out in front of cars as they're going through an intersection and force them to swerve and hit a tree, endangering the passengers in the vehicle. We also would need to look at what about some of these cardboard cutouts? Yeah, are those going to be evaluated just like a human? Yeah, because to a car oncoming even if it was a human driving it you have a bunch of cardboard cutouts it's not necessarily going to be Im immediately clear that those are cardboard and not people yeah or mannequins or mannequins exactly yeah. i mean you could even go 3d with it or in san antonio here we get a lot of pinatas you could drop a big pinata uh, out in front of the thing that looks like a car or a kid or a stroller and here's an interesting ethical question yeah let's say that you have one person over here and you have your cost function again. It costs 10,000 units or whatever to hit that person. Then you have a group of five people over there. Does a group of five people cost 50,000 or does it also cost 10,000? Is it equally bad? Are we going to start making judgments with regard to which one is better to hit? Yeah, or uh, or you take some actuarial view of the the future life impact. So is it if you hit someone who's eighty years old, does that have lower points than someone who's twelve years old? Because that twelve year old, in theory, is going to contribute more to society than the eighty year old at this point. Exactly. Yeah, because it really comes down to the way in which you program the decisions to be made in the car. And I could make I could see an argument that it is equally valid to say. All human life or aggregations of human life are equally valuable. So I'm going to try and avoid all humans as opposed to weighing one group heavier than another. Yeah. You could also take that group that thought that, well, you want to minimize harm. So you have either the, you count up the numbers or you try and identify which ones are kids, which ones are adults. And you 
and you value one human more than another based upon some sort of imperfectly observed characteristics that you are trying to capture and characterize on the fly by a computer. Yeah. And this is uh, interesting because as we're going through and we're having this talk about the the ethics and the, the value of the, the human life at different um, ages or aspects or other things, uh, as a software developer, there's going to be somebody out there writing code that's going to be told from a in, in a software design document how to evaluate and make these decisions. And someone's got to decide, do they feel comfortable writing that software or not? Well, you make actually an assumption there, which is not always necessarily going to be true. One of the things that is kind of extraordinary about the current wave of machine learning is that to a certain extent, it's a black box. You don't really always know what is going on inside of it. There are various ways to try and tease out and infer the ways in which it is it, it is making a decision. But we came to a conclusion, we being broadly software engineers and especially machine learning engineers, uh, probably in the mid to late 2000s and then accelerating up through this decade that to a certain extent it was too hard to program in rules for every situation but to a certain extent we could tell the computer to figure out its own way of evaluating situation if we gave it enough examples and that has been what has driven all of the advances in machine learning artificial intelligence especially over the past five years. This has simply exploded, and it has had better success than anything else that Google searches are now driven by this sort of thing. Google Translate is all driven by it. Yeah, radiologists are starting to to use these systems to identify tumors, whether they're malignant or benign, and all sorts of um, areas where uh, evaluating these complex sets and patterns, um, if you can show it 10,000 malignant tumors and 10,000 benign tumors, now the AI can distinguish better than any human um, the difference between the two. Exactly. But it can't teach you what it knows. And so getting back to this car example, you go through and you have these situations where you have rules that have been implicitly learned by doing a bunch of driving and having maybe it watches the driver and they jerk away from something that looks like a child and they uh, they make various decisions. It could be that the weights that end up being applied in a particular situation are not the result of a programmer saying, I'm going to value a human life at such and such. It could be that they've just learned by example, by teaching, that certain sorts of things with certain sorts of representations, we really try hard not to hit. Yeah. But you wouldn't be able to prove that that is exactly what it was thinking. It's interesting. Yeah, it's not like you can go back to the the flight recorder on the airplane and see exactly how you got to a situation where planes crash. We hear about those black boxes all the time. And that in-flight recorder that shows every input device in the plane, it shows all of the readings off all the gauges, it shows a very detailed to where you can go put the plane back in exactly the same spot in the flight simulator in theory, and you can watch the whole thing 
replay over again. You may not be able to do that with the way these machine learning platforms work. Yeah. And even if you could, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong. It yeah. simply meant that perhaps it encountered a situation in which the best way it could, it acted in the best way that it could, given the training that it had received. So if you're thinking about buying an autonomous car for yourself and your family, if the manufacturer is not going to give you a guarantee that it's going to value the life, your life and the life of your, your family inside the vehicle over all the external things, are you going to buy the car? or how Absolutely. Are you? Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm too tech forward on this. Yeah. But I sort of feel like we do things all the time that don't properly value human life. I mean, how many people do you look down and you see that they're texting in their car? Yeah. Is that properly valuing human life? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, I think that we've all been there in times when we were tired or distracted or, you know, had kids in the back seat and we're we're trying to manage them and trying to drive and get down get to where we're going i think that there's a certain threshold at which you say hmm this is statistically likely to be safer yeah and probably by the time that you get to that point it will statistically be significantly safer not just a little bit on the margin and that and that point i would hop on board easily yeah, so we, even if, if the car is going to just look at, at the overall best outcome in a given situation, you think that its overall best outcome is going to be better than your average outcome anyways trying to drive the car yourself is what you're saying. Looping around, 35,000 deaths is a lot of deaths. Yeah. If it was in a situation where that was 1,000 deaths, each one of those deaths would still be a tragedy but there would be 34,000 people left alive. Yeah, and this is, is one of the interesting things. I think everyone's got the control of like, oh, I'm not the bad driver. I'm not the one that's causing those 35,000 things. And we, we look at the, the safety of our major airlines, and the, the planes in general now land themselves. Um, the planes are using uh, effectively autonomous flying and autonomous landing to land themselves in general across um, most of the major airlines and most of the times when they're going in to land these days. You know, I have it on good authority, Brett, that fully half of the drivers out there are below average. Yes. Yeah. This is where Van, uh, in his background, while he's an attorney, he can do math as well, uh, which is a, an, an odd trait. You're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. So one of the things that is important to think about is with when you think about taking control of a car. You mentioned hackers taking control of a car. But it may not be that that is, again, something that is, we may actually want to allow that functionality. For example, one of the things that is frequently thought of as a possible positive capability of self-driving cars is the ability for a police officer to issue a command to the car to say, pull over, stop, lock the doors. This is in itself actually a pretty tricky situation because if that capability exists, even if it is well protected, that is a very attractive possibility for other people to use that use that for nefarious ends. Yeah. No, there's uh, all of these is the, it's the the scales of justice, and you've got to look at features and decide the positive impact in using it in the normal everyday good ways, and then what is the 
negative impact if that great power ends up in the hands of, of people that want to use it nefariously. I have, I have a friend who's very deeply into the computer security space. And he said, the trick is always to think, how can I break this? How can I be nefarious about it? And we anticipate that most people are going to be people of good faith acting normally. But all those assumptions go out the window when you think about how can this be attacked. Yeah, no, it, it creates an interesting ethical problems. And one we, we didn't talk about yet is, do you allow the car to drive around by itself with no passengers inside? So uh, we'll be back uh, after the break here where we'll dive into uh, ransomware, the ethics of artificial intelligence, and maybe a little bit more about these self-driving cars. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. If you're uh, just joining us now after the news traffic and weather update, uh, we're talking the ethics of artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, and really just some of the ethics around some of these cyber incidents, such as uh, paying hackers uh, in a ransomware scenario. So um, over the the course of the the last uh, month and the kind of news cycle here, uh, whether if you hadn't heard about ransomware before, if you pay attention to any of the even watching like the Today Show in the morning, they had a segment on uh, this outbreak that combined ransomware with an Internet worm called WannaCry or WannaCrypt. Um, and, and this gets out um, into should you pay the ransom? What this means is if the hackers get into your computer, they encrypt your files and then they offer them back to you for for a fee. Uh, our guest this week is Van Lindberg. He's an attorney with uh, Dyke McCock Smith. He's also a uh, software developer and an open source advocate. So he's kind of uniquely uh, qualified to understand the legal implications behind some of these things, as well as then uh, just the how the technology actually uh, works to be able to combine those two and have a very insightful conversation. If you missed uh, the first half of the program, you can catch the replay on our podcast via iTunes or Pocket Cast uh, coming up on Tuesday. We air each uh, episode after we're on the radio here. Um, well, you can also catch all of the uh, the past episodes and check out more at our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. So, Van, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit as we're here. Uh, the ethics of paying a ransom in these, these ransomware uh, attacks. So I think that one of the interesting things is to look at other types of ransom situations. You have everything from individual family members where there was a kidnapping or something like that, where you the common thing is to, yes, you pay the you, you pay the ransom, you try and capture the person, you use the ransom demand as an opportunity to, to try to catch to catch the criminal. But it seems like in individual situations, the common you the the thing that you commonly do is you pay the ransom where that changes is where you start to move up and you say is this a situation where we are going to start to encounter repeated engagements with this sort of actor so for example if you certain families uh certain families that are very very rich and could 
be a repeated target, have started to say, no, we won't, or to take extra efforts. Going all the way up to the United States has made very strongly and very publicly the, the statement that they do not negotiate with terrorists, Yeah, which is a long way of saying we won't, uh, we, we do not pay off ransoms. On a smaller scale, but similarly, these people are not actually criminals, but at Rackspace, one of the things that we did, I was previously at Rackspace, is we made very clear that we would not pay off patent trolls, which we thought were acting in a similar way. Yeah. No, it's uh, the legal world of uh, uh, shakedown, but it's a whole interesting debate for another day and another radio program there. Uh, that getting in on this, this paying the criminals. So uh, an example ransomware. Uh, so you had uh, the public transit out in the San Francisco Bay Area. They got hit and they decided not to pay the ransom. They uh, were offline for a little bit and then they just made all of the public transit free for a period of a couple of weeks while they got their systems back online. Uh, as you're going through that situation, what are, you, what are your thoughts about that one specifically? I think that that's probably the best response that they could have come up with the situation because to a certain extent you have to look at the balance of harms. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the case of this ransomware that spread randomly uh, across the internet, this was not necessarily targeted, for example, at the metro system in the in the Bay Area. Yeah. So this was a, a target of opportunity simply because it happened to, they happened to have some systems that were vulnerable to the worm and so could be encrypted. So at that point, you need to look at what is the harm of paying the criminal and thus furthering the criminal enterprise versus the perhaps not as severe but much more widespread harm associated with keeping millions of people from their commute and from doing the things that they need to do. Yeah. In When time, when the, when the, communication systems are down or when hospital systems are down such as was in in the uk or when transportation systems are down there are real costs to hundreds or thousands or even millions of people that need to be taken into account even if they're much more diffuse so i think that in this case where they said what we're going to do is we are going to forego the money and allow the system to continue they mitigated the harm, I think, in probably about the best way that they could. Yeah, it was much more financially expensive to them um, to make the the fares free for a couple of weeks. I think they were the ransom demand for the transit system there was ninety thousand uh, dollars. It would have been much less expensive for them to pay the ransom. Uh, but ethically, they made the decision in that case to to not pay it and make the fares free until they could get the hackers out. But, in, a, in an alternative scenario, there have been uh, some publicly disclosed cases and probably some that have not been publicly disclosed. But say you're um, in a hospital, you're ransomware, um, your computers that control all of the machines in the intensive care unit are ransomed. Do you pay the ransom or do you run your ICU without computers? And from what I understand, at least in some cases, they said the immediate harm is more acute and more particularized for these for these patients it is cheaper and it's uh, it's better ethically to pay off the pay off the criminal. And again, I think that that is not necessarily a wrong decision. These are places where ethics frequently comes down to two different things. It comes down to 
rules and boundaries around situations, and it comes down to a balance of harms where you're trying to balance different competing goods or different competing interests against each other and to act in a way that either minimizes the harm or is predictable so that other people can know what you're about and can can change their actions appropriately. And in both of these cases, I think that the response was was arguably an ethical one, even though in one case is that case they paid off in the other case they didn't yeah so then and related to this ethics around ransomware so um, it technically um, as I follow along most ransomware does not cause a data breach uh, because data is never exfiltrated their software comes in their software encrypts the data if you pay the ransom then it decrypts the data and you you're back up and running but the hackers have never technically downloaded uh, and, and taken your data out of your network uh, from a, an ethics perspective, because of this, many of the ransomware attacks go unreported because we, we have a number of laws out there that cover disclosure of data breaches, but they don't necessarily disclose or require disclosure of a hacker break-in. This is one place where I can understand where those laws and where those lines were made, uh, particularly given the fact that any organization of significant size is going to be fielding hundreds or even thousands of possible attacks each day, some of which may be successful in a minor and but unimportant way. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think that there's something a little bit disingenuous about saying we have no actual knowledge that, that a malicious actor was in our network, had access to this data, but simply because they didn't happen to email it to themselves or, or do something else, we don't have to report it and we can be quiet. Yeah. I think that that starts, the saving face in that case ends up being a little bit shady. So ethically, if, if you were in a, a hospital ICU and you're on, it just got out of surgery and you're on a heart monitor and other things. And for 30 minutes, the charge nurse at the station there couldn't see the devices in your room, but you lived through it. No actual harm was done to you. Uh, you would not be happy if the hospital didn't disclose to you that, that the systems were down for 30 minutes via a ransomware attack. No, I wouldn't. But again, one of the things about that you practice as a lawyer is looking at both sides of, of issues. And so on, on the one hand, I'm approaching this very much as a consumer, as a possible consumer of these services, as, yeah. a, uh, as, as a customer of various possible uh, companies. On the other hand, you could look at, fr look at it from the perspective of the people who are sitting inside the com company and saying, yes, something regrettable happened, but A, no harm, no foul, and B, we actually have a lot of employees we have a lot of people who are dependent upon us and if we were to disclose this well then it would probably drive a lot of negative publicity it might drive some lawsuits that would cost money that would cost time that would otherwise be profitably put toward furthering the furthering employment furthering the good that we are trying to do yeah, and if, if the power was out in the ICU while you were asleep and you woke up 30 minutes later, would you want them to inform you about a power outage? Maybe, maybe not. And, I mean, effectively, the power outage puts you through the same 30 minutes of risk that the 30-minute 
ransomware locking up all the computer files and locking up all the computer systems did. They, they were unable to monitor your equipment remotely. Most of the equipment in the ICU has direct battery backup on it, so it's going to run, but it's not going to get necessarily back to um, the central station where they can monitor everything from it. So let's look. Let's get it out of the hospital context for a second, though. Yeah. Let's look at a financial services provider or someone like that. Your bank. Your bank. Your bank has a lot of very sensitive information about you. And when you when you look at the 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 hospital circumstance, you can say, well, we can pretty much prove that this person was in such and such. Uh, they, they had this set of symptoms at the beginning of this outage, and they had the same symptoms at the end of the outage. Nothing happened that was as a result of this. You can kind of prove no harm, no foul. Yeah. But what if the harm is not necessarily, in the case of a bank, all right, no money was transferred out. Yeah. Or no, but what if the harm is perhaps the knowledge about some of the underlying circumstances and some of the underlying things that are going on in your account and other other accounts that can be used at at another time in another place to provide leverage or to engage in identity theft or, or all sorts of other things like that. Yeah. I think that the concept of no harm ends up being a lot more difficult to support there. Yeah, in the in the data breach world, like there where they've captured and gathered your information, uh, that that one, in theory, we have laws that are are pretty clear uh, about some of the disclosure requirements folks should follow there. Whether they choose to is still um, a, a little bit of a gray area as they have to go. Well, you, do we have definitive evidence that it really was a breach? And if it's not definitive, we're choosing not to disclose. Versus somebody else's policy might be if we believe there's a chance there was a data breach, then we're going to disclose. So. Um, folks can still interpret the data breach pieces differently. But let's say in the financial institution is offline for 30 minutes because uh, they have their computer systems down due to ransomware, and you're unable to complete a transaction. You have clients out to uh, lunch, and you're trying to pay on your credit card, and you're embarrassed now. The card's failed, and you, you lose that client. So there was some direct harm to you there. Uh, that was caused by this outage in their system. And you call up the bank afterwards and you say, hey, I tried to use my card during lunch. And they say, well, sir, there's no problem with your card now. Um, Go ahead and try to use it again. You use it and it works. And you go, well, why didn't it work 30 minutes ago? And they go, well, that's just the problem of the financial system. Sometimes these systems won't work. But they have direct knowledge that it didn't work during that 30-minute window because of a hacker attack. Do they have an obligation to disclose that to you or not? As far as I understand, they don't have an obligation at this point. The question is whether they should, yeah. either as a result of laws or as a result of some sort of broader analysis of, of state customers as stakeholders. Yeah, so this uh, whole aspects around the, the ethics of do you pay the criminals and do you disclose to your customers? Um, as a customer, do we want disclosure? Um, does it cause uh, an irrational um, almost reaction of fear if you... Um, as a consumer, we're aware of, of sort of all the things that are going on behind the scenes that in the, quote, no harm, no foul side of the world, um, all the productivity gains and other good things we get out of, of the use of technology does um, over-disclosure scare people away. It probably does. The One of the things that I learned several years ago and has always struck me 
uh, sort of similar is that there is a federally mandated minimum okay level of bug parts in your peanut butter. And if there is a certain, if, if the bug parts are there, but they're below this level, everyone has decided, you know what? It's okay. That doesn't have to, you don't have to put ant or cockroach or whatever on the list of ingredients is what you're saying? That's exactly right. Okay. But there are ants or cockroach or other undesirable pieces in yours and mine and everybody's peanut butter. I guess flies do like peanut butter. So the question is, if it is below a certain threshold where maybe there is a little bit of harm if you consider eating you know, some of these bug parts at harm, yeah, if you were a vegetarian and you're like, I'm not really sure I'm vegetarian because I eat a lot of peanut butter now. Exactly. Yeah. So this ethics is back into this thing again because they may have made a personal life choice to eat plants, which peanuts are a, a bean, basically. Uh, they're not really a nut. It's an interesting separate story. But, uh, yeah, if you're choosing to eat those because you're trying to be vegetarian and you're finding out now apparently um, here you're not necessarily vegetarian. That's right. And so the, the question is, does overdisclosure help or hurt? And I think that there's a reasonable argue, argument to be made that for certain things at a, below a, a certain level of, uh, of significance, maybe non-disclosure is the best policy, but it's really, really hard to draw those lines and feel real comfortable about things that are right on the edge of the line either way. Yeah. So on, on this, uh, the ethics of disclosure and some of these things. So we, we've talked a little bit on some previous episodes of Cyber Talk Radio about zero-day exploits. And, um, and you have nation-state actors that have zero-day exploits, which are these are the nuclear weapons of the um, cyber world. Um, they're the unstoppable thing that you can get it, um, into any other system with that has that's running that version of the software that your unknown, undocumented exploit um, can take advantage of. So nation-state actors are pretty comfortable because they actually have real nuclear weapons that can blow things up, having the cyber equivalent of these nuclear weapons. And if one nation-state chose to disclose all of their zero-day exploits, they're effectively going through the cyber equivalent of nuclear disarmament. And if all of the other nation-states that also have zero-day exploits don't disclose all theirs, then you've effectively given up your nuclear weapons and they still have theirs. So we have this ethical situation right now where, um, as best we can tell in the cyber world, all the nation states are hoarding zero-day exploits, just like the the nuclear arms race we had back during the Cold War era. We have a similar cyber nuclear arms race going on right now um, here. Uh, Any kind of perspective or thoughts on the the ethics of, of this? So I guess my thoughts on this one have to do with the fact that the realization of two facts. Number one, a lot of times a zero day that's discovered by you and you may be keeping it secret, well, probably there are going to be other people who are also just as intelligent and looking for same sorts of flaws that have probably found the same thing. So I don't necessarily think that even if you are keeping a zero day secret, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a secret from everybody. I think the second point is to look at it and say, software is always being developed. It either advances or it, or it deteriorates. And if there's software in use, they're going to keep on trying to advance it. 
and advancing software almost inevitably means bugs, which means that you aren't necessarily cutting off your ability to develop new nuclear weapons in this parlance, zero days. Yeah. What you're doing is you are simply saying you can't necessarily sit on them. I would advocate for a policy that said after a limited and reasonable amount of time, these sorts of zero days should be shared in confidence with the with the manufacturers of the software so that they can be patched with the idea that new opportunities to develop these things will will come up and in and as a whole it is better for us to be protected because as we've seen the fact that you have these nation state actors who are trying to develop these zero days and then keep them secret they're not always doing a 100% secure job of keeping their zero day secret yeah, hence the wanna cry outbreak exactly this was for those who don't know the underlying worm and the exploit of this worm appears to have been developed by the NSA, by the government, and weaponized for use in certain situations. It was then leaked by some NSA contractor. Yeah, shadow brokers or whatever they called themselves. Exactly. Dumped out, onto, dumped out onto the first offered for sale and then dumped out onto the internet as evidence of what... of the things that our government was doing in our name, and someone picked it up and bolted their ransomware onto a ready-made, ready-made exploit that our government had had a hand in creating. We probably would have been more secure if after, I don't know, a year, the NSA would have come gone to Microsoft and said, by the way, you have a real serious exploit here. Yeah. And given them the opportunity years and years ago to shut this off because as we've seen there are lots of other ways in which exploits can can occur yeah and my my understanding on this one specifically it was over five years old at the the time that it was put into use here uh, in the, the first part of 2017 uh, it had been discovered uh, back in somewhere roughly in the 2012 time frame exactly yeah so as we're, we're talking through these zero days we've um, kind of uh roundabout way to segue back into our autonomous vehicle conversation so if i'm a a auto manufacturer um, and i'm doing testing of one of my competitors autonomous vehicle software um, because i'm buying cars that are competitors so i can do testing to compare my cars to their cars and and i discover a what i consider to be a significant technical issue in their system do i have a an obligation ethically to disclose that to them you may not have an obligation under the law i would feel that you would have an obligation ethically to do so uh and i would say in in part that is due to again the balance of the harms that we talked about yeah in the last in the last half hour of the segment of the show we talked about how do you make some of these ethical decisions, and we talked about the balance of harms. In this case, especially when the thing that you're dealing with is an autonomous car, and you've discovered something that's serious enough that it may imperil the passengers or someone else, I would think and I would hope that the balance of harms of financial gain for you as one side and possible harm to lots of people on the other side 
that the balance of harms would suggest this really should be disclosed. And and so do I disclose it via a press release and go, ha, 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 look at my competitor. They've got this big problem. Or do I disclose it behind the scenes so they can fix it without inciting panic? Or especially if it's, let's say, it's a remote exploit that I find that where you could disable the brakes in one of my competitor's cars. Do I disclose that via a press release? Is that irresponsible or... How do we go about that disclosure to the competitor? There are a series of standards associated with responsible disclosure where what you do first is you reach out to the manufacturer. You give them a chance to solve the solve the problem. But unfortunately, one of the things that sometimes people do is they say, well, I didn't find this bug, so no harm, no foul. No one else knows about it, yeah. even if you do. And there have been occasions where people have avoided taking responsibility and fixing these sorts of bugs simply because it would cost too much time or money or bad publicity. And after a period of time, public disclosure has been needed in order to, to prompt action. I think that the disclosure of a, of a bug, especially a serious one in an autonomous car, would probably follow the same sorts of guidelines of, of responsible, uh, responsible disclosure. Let's say now that nation states have a, a zero-day exploit against these autonomous vehicles where they can either remotely take over the cars or disable them or um, all these sorts of things. Do they have a, an obligation, do you feel, to kind of go disclose those to the, the auto manufacturers? Again, I would say that the balance of harms probably would suggest yes. Yeah. Uh, especially because when you think about the opportunity to think, keep, keep things secret, if there was ever such an opportunity, it seems to be it seems to be much lower now and dis, and declining over time. And so I think that anybody, in, including and perhaps particularly nation states, need to plan for the time that any secret that they have will eventually be known by their adversaries or known by the public.